0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading part one of Sherlock Holmes' The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. In recording from time to time some of the curious experiences and interesting recollections which I associate with my long and intimate friendship with Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I have continually been faced by difficulties caused by his own aversion to publicity. To his sombre and cynical spirit, all popular applause was always abhorrent, and nothing amused him more at the end of a successful case than to hand over the actual exposure to some orthodox official, and to listen with a mocking smile to the general chorus of misplaced congratulations. It was indeed this attitude upon the part of my friend, and certainly not any lack of interesting material which has caused me of late years to lay very few of my recordings before the public. My participation in some of his adventures was always a privilege which entailed discretion and reticence upon me. It was, then, with considerable surprise that I received a telegram from Holmes last Tuesday. He has never been known to write where a telegram would suffice. In the following terms... Why not tell them of the Cornish horror, strangest case I have handled? I have no idea what backward sweep of memory had brought the matter fresh to his mind, or what freak had caused him to desire that I should recount it, but I hasten, before another cancelling telegram may arrive, to hunt out the notes which give me the exact details of the case, and to lay the narrative before my readers. It was, then, in the spring of the year 1897, that Holmes's Iron Constitution showed some symptoms of giving way in the face of constant hard work, a most exacting kind. Aggravated, perhaps, by occasional indiscretions of his own. In March of that year, Dr. Agar of Harley Street, whose dramatic introduction to Holmes I may someday recount, gave positive injunctions that the famous private agent lay aside all his cases and surrender himself to complete rest if he wished to avert an absolute breakdown. The state of his health was not a matter in which he took the faintest interest, for his mental detachment was absolute, but he was induced at last on the threat of being permanently disqualified from work to give himself a complete change of scene and air. Thus it was that in the early spring of that year, we found ourselves together in a small cottage near Poldu Bay, at the furthest extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. It was a singular spot, and one peculiarly well suited to the grim humour of my patient, From the windows of our little whitewashed house, which stood high upon a grassy headland, we looked down upon the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay. That old death trap of sailing vessels, with its fringe of black cliffs and surge-swept reefs on which innumerable seamen have met their end, With a northerly wind it lies placid and sheltered, inviting the storm-tossed craft to tack into it for rest and protection. Then come the sudden swirl round of the wind, the blistering gale from the southwest, the dragging anchor, the lee shore, and the last battle in the creaming breakers. The wise mariner stands far out from that evil place. On the land side, our surroundings were as sombre as the sea. It was a country of rolling moors, lonely and dun-coloured, with an occasional church tower to mark the site of some old-world village. In every direction upon these moors, there were traces of some banished race which had passed utterly away, and left as its sole record strange monuments of stone, irregular mounds which contained the burned ashes of the dead, and curious earthworks which hinted at prehistoric strife. The glamour and mystery of the place, with its sinister atmosphere of forgotten nations, appealed to the imagination of my friend, and he spent much of his time in long walks and solitary meditation upon the moor. The ancient Cornish language had also arrested his attention, and he had, I remember, conceived the idea that it was akin to the Chaldean, and had been largely derived from the Phoenician traders in tin. He had received a consignment of books upon physiology, and was settling down to develop this thesis, when suddenly, to my sorrow and to his unfeigned delight, we found ourselves Even in that land of dreams, plunged into a problem at our very doors which was more intense, more engrossing, and infinitely more mysterious than any of those which had driven us from London. Our simple life and peaceful, healthy routine were violently interrupted, and we were precipitated. Into the midst of a series of events which caused the utmost excitement not only in Cornwall but throughout the whole west of England. Many of my readers may retain some recollection of what was called at the time the Cornish Horror, though a most imperfect account of the matter reached the London press. Now, after thirteen years, I will give the true details of this inconceivable affair to the public. I have said that scattered towers marked the villages which dotted this part of Cornwall. The nearest of these was the hamlet of Trednik Wallace, where the cottages of a couple of hundred inhabitants clustered round an ancient moss-grown church. The vicar of the parish, Mr. Roundhay, was something of an archaeologist, and as such, Holmes had made his acquaintance. He was a middle-aged man, portly and affable, with a considerable fund of local lore. At his invitation, we had taken tea at the vicarage, and had come to know, also, Mr. Mortimer Tregenis, an independent gentleman who increased the clergyman's scanty resources by taking room in his large, straggling house. The vicar, being a bachelor, was glad to come to such an arrangement, though he had little in common with his lodger, who was a thin, dark, spectacled man, with a stooped which gave the impression of actual physical deformity. I remember that during our short visit, we found the vicar garrulous, but his lodger strangely reticent, a sad-faced, introspective man, sitting with averted eyes, brooding apparently upon his own affairs. These were the two men who entered abruptly into our sitting room on Tuesday, March the 16th, shortly after our breakfast hour, as we were smoking together, preparatory to our daily excursion upon the moors. Mr. Holmes, said the vicar in an agitated voice. The most extraordinary and tragic affair has occurred during the night. It is the most unheard of business. We can only regard it as a special providence that you should chance to be here at this time, for in all England you are the one man we need. I glared at the intrusive vicar with no friendly eyes, but Holmes took his pipe. From his lips and sat up in his chair like an old hound who hears the view holler. We waved his hand to the sofa and our palpitating visitor with his agitated companion sat side by side upon it. Mr. Mortimer Tregennis was more self-contained than the clergyman, but the twitching of his thin hands and the brightness of his dark eyes showed that they shared a common emotion. "'Shall I speak, or you?' he asked of the vicar. "'Well, as you seem to have made the discovery, whatever it may be, and the vicar to have had it second-hand, perhaps you had better do the speaking,' said Holmes." I glanced at the hastily clad clergyman with the formally dressed lodger seated beside him, and was amused at the surprise which Holmes's simple deduction had brought to their faces. Perhaps I had best say a few words first, said the vicar, and then you can judge if you will listen to the details of Mr. Tregennis or whether we should not hasten at once to the scene of this mysterious affair. I may explain, then, that our friend here spent last evening in the company of his two brothers, Owen and George, and of his sister Brenda at their house of Trinidad Water, which is near the old stone cross upon the moor. He left them shortly after ten o'clock, playing cards round the dining room table, in excellent health and spirits. This morning, being an early riser, he walked in that direction before breakfast and was overtaken by the carriage of Dr. Richards, who explained that he had just been sent for on a most urgent call to Drenadict Water. Mr. Mortimer Tregennis naturally went with him. When he arrived at Trinidad Whartha, he found an extraordinary state of things. His two brothers and his sister were seated round the table exactly as he had left them. The cards still spread in front of them and the candles burnt down to their sockets. The sister lay back Stone dead in her chair, while the two brothers sat on each side of her, laughing, shouting, and singing, the senses stricken clean out of them. All three of them, the dead woman and the two demented men, retained upon their faces an expression of the utmost horror, a convulsion of terror which was dreadful to look upon. There was no sign of the presence of anyone else in the house, except Mrs. Porter, the old cook and housekeeper, who declared that she had slept deeply and heard no sound during the night. Nothing had been stolen or disarranged, and there is absolutely no explanation of what the horror can be which has frightened a woman to death. And two strong men out of their senses. There is the situation, Mr. Holmes, in a nutshell, and if you can help us to clear it up, you will have done a great work. I had hoped that in some way I could coax my companion back into the quiet which had been the object of our journey but one glance at his intense face and contracted eyebrows told me how vain was now the expectation. He sat for some little time in silence, absorbed in the strange drama which had broken in upon our peace. I will look into this matter, he said at last. On the face of it, "'it would appear to be a case of a very exceptional nature. "'Have you been there yourself, Mr Roundhay?' "'No, Mr Holmes. "'Mr Tregennis brought back the account to the vicarage, "'and I at once hurried over with him to consult you. "'How far is it to the house where this singular tragedy occurred?' "'about a mile inland. "'Then we shall walk over together. "'But before we start, "'I must ask you a few questions, "'Mr. Mortimer Tregennis.' "'The other had been silent all this time, "'but I had observed that his more controlled excitement "'was ever greater than the obtrusive emotion of the clergyman. "'He sat with a pale drawn face, his anxious gaze fixed upon Holmes, and his thin hands clasped convulsively together. His pale lips quivered as he listened to the dreadful experience which had befallen his family, and his dark eyes seemed to reflect something of the horror of the scene. "'Ask what you like, Mr. Holmes,' said he eagerly. It is a bad thing to speak of, but I will answer you the truth. Tell me about last night. Well, Mr. Holmes, I supped there, as the vicar has said, and my elder brother George proposed a game of whist afterwards. We sat down about nine o'clock It was a quarter past ten when I moved to go. I left them all round the table, as merry as could be. Who let you out? Mrs. Porter had gone to bed, so I let myself out. I shut the hall door behind me. The window of the room in which they sat was closed, but the blind was not drawn down. There was no change in the door or window this morning, or any reason to think that any stranger had been to the house. Yet there they sat, driven clean mad with terror, and Brenda lying dead of fright, with her head hanging over the arm of the chair. I'll never get the sight of that room out of my mind so long as I live. "'The facts, as you state them, are certainly most remarkable,' said Holmes. "'I take it that you have no theory yourself which can in any way account for them.' "'It's devilish, Mr. Holmes, devilish,' cried Mortimer Tregennis. "'It is not of this world. Something has come into that room.' which has dashed the light of reason from their minds. What human contrivance could do that? I fear, said Holmes, that if the matter is beyond humanity, it is certainly beyond me. Yet we must exhaust all natural explanations before we fall back upon such a theory as this. As to yourself, Mr. Tregennis, I take it you were divided in some way from your family, since they lived together and you had to room apart. That is so, Mr. Holmes, though the matter is past and done with. We were a family of tin miners in Redruth, but we sold our venture to a company and so retired with enough to keep us. I won't deny that there was some feeling about the division of the money, and it stood between us for a time, but it was all forgiven and forgotten, and we were the best of friends together. Looking back at the evening which you spent together, does anything stand out in your memory as throwing any possible light upon the tragedy? Think carefully. Mr. Tregennis, for any clue which can help me. There is nothing at all, sir. Your people were in their usual spirits. Never better. Were they nervous people? Did they ever show any appreciation of coming danger? Nothing of the kind. You have nothing to add, then, which could assist me. Mortimer Tregenis considered earnestly for a moment. "'There is one thing that occurs to me,' said he at last. "'As we sat at the table, my back was to the window, and my brother George, he being my partner at cards, was facing it. "'I saw him once look hard over my shoulder, so I turned round and looked also.' The blind was up and the window shut, but I could just make out the bushes on the lawn, and it seemed to me for a moment that I saw something moving around them. I couldn't even say if it was a man or animal, but I just thought there was something there. When I asked him what he was looking at, he told me that he had the same feeling. That is all I can say. Did you not investigate? No, the matter passed as unimportant. You left them, then, without any premonition of evil. None at all. I am not clear how you came to hear the news so early this morning. I am an early riser and generally take a walk before breakfast. This morning I had hardly started when the doctor in his carriage overtook me. He told me that old Mrs. Porter had sent a boy down with an urgent message. I sprang in beside him and we drove on. When we got there we looked into that dreadful room. The candles and the fire must have burned out hours before, and they had been sitting there in the dark until dawn had broken. The doctor said Brenda must have been dead at least six hours. There were no signs of violence. She just lay across the arm of the chair with that look on her face. George and Owen were singing snatches of songs and gibbering like two great apes. Oh, It was awful to see. I couldn't stand it, and the doctor was as white as a sheet. Indeed, he fell into a chair in a sort of faint, and we nearly had him on our hands as well. Remarkable, most remarkable, said Holmes, rising and taking his hat. I think, perhaps we had better go down to Trinidic Water, without further delay. I confess that I have seldom known a case which at first sight presented a more singular problem. Our proceedings of that first morning did little to advance the investigation. It was marked, however, at the outset by an incident which left the most sinister impression upon my mind. The approach to the spot at which the tragedy occurred is down a narrow, winding country lane. While we made our way along it, we heard the rattle of a carriage coming towards us and stood aside to let it pass. As it drove by us, I caught a glimpse through the closed window of a horrible, contorted, grinning face glaring out at us. Those staring eyes and gnashing teeth flashed past us like a dreadful vision. "'My brothers,' cried Mortimer Tregenis, white to his lips, "'they are taking them to Helston.' We looked with horror after the black carriage, lumbering upon its way. Then we turned our steps towards this ill-omened house in which they had met their strange fate. It was a large and bright dwelling, rather a villa than a cottage, with a considerable garden which was already, in that Cornish air, well filled with spring flowers. Towards this garden the window of the sitting-room fronted, and from it, according to Mortimer Tregenis, must have come that thing of evil which had by sheer horror in a single instant blasted their minds. Holmes walked slowly and thoughtfully among the flower-plots, and along the path before we entered the porch. So absorbed was he in his thoughts, I remember that he stumbled over the watering pot, upset its contents, and deluged both our feet and the garden path. Inside the house we were met by the elderly Cornish housekeeper, Mrs. Porter, who, with the aid of a young girl, Looked after the wants of the family. She readily answered all Holmes's questions. She had heard nothing in the night. Her employers had all been in excellent spirits lately, and she had never known them more cheerful and prosperous. She had fainted with horror upon entering the room in the morning and seeing that dreadful company round the table. She had, when she recovered, thrown open the window to let the morning air in and had run down to the lane whence she sent a farm lad for the doctor. The lady was on her bed upstairs if we cared to see her. It took four strong men to get the brothers into the asylum carriage. She would not herself stay in the house another day and was starting that very afternoon to rejoin her family in St. Ives. We ascended the stairs and viewed the body. Miss Brenda Tregenis had been a very beautiful girl, though now verging upon middle age. Her dark, clear-cut face was handsome, even in death, but there still lingered upon it, something of that convulsion of horror which had been her last human emotion. From her bedroom we descended to the sitting room, where this strange tragedy had actually occurred. The charred ashes of the overnight fire lay in the grate. On the table were the four gutted and burned out candles, with the cards scattered over its surface, The chairs had been moved back against the walls, but all else was as it had been the night before. Holmes paced with light, swift steps about the room. He sat in the various chairs, drawing them up and reconstructing their positions. He tested how much of the garden was visible. He examined the floor, the ceiling, and the fireplace but never once did I see that sudden brightening of his eyes and tightening of his lips, which would have told me that he saw some gleam of light in this utter darkness. Why a fire? he asked once. Had they always a fire in this small room on a spring evening? Mortimer Tregenis explained that the night was cold and damp For that reason, after his arrival, the fire was lit. "'What are you going to do now, Mr. Holmes?' he asked. My friend smiled and laid his hand upon my arm. "'I think, Watson, that I shall resume that course of tobacco poisoning which you have so often and so justly condemned,' said he. "'With your permission,' gentlemen, we will now return to our cottage, for I am not aware that any new factor is likely to come to our notice here. I will turn the facts over in my mind, Mr. Tregennis, and should anything occur to me, I will certainly communicate with you and the vicar. In the meantime, I wish you both good morning." It was not until long after we were back in Poldew Cottage that Holmes broke his complete and absorbed silence. He sat, coiled in his armchair, his haggard and aesthetic face hardly visible amid the blue swirl of his tobacco smoke, his black-brown drawn down, his forehead contracted, his eyes vacant and far away. Finally, he laid down his pipe and sprang to his feet. "'It won't do, Watson,' said he with a laugh. "'Let us walk along the cliffs together and search for flint arrows. "'We are more likely to find them than clues to this problem. "'To let the brain work without sufficient material is like racing an engine. "'It racks itself to pieces.' The sea air, sunshine, and patience, Watson. All else will come. Now, let us calmly define our position, Watson, he continued as we skirted the cliffs together. Let us get a firm grip of the very little which we do know, so that when fresh facts arise, we may be ready to fit them into their place." I take it, in the first place, that neither of us is prepared to admit diabolical intrusions into the affairs of men. Let us begin by ruling that entirely out of our minds. Good. There remains three persons who have been grievously stricken by some conscious or unconscious human agency. That is firm ground. Now, when did this occur? Evidently, assuming his narrative to be true, it was immediately after Mr. Mortimer Tregennis had left the room. That is a very important point. The presumption is that it was within a few minutes afterwards. The cards still lay upon the table. It was already past their usual hour for bed. Yet they had not changed their position or pushed back their chairs. I repeat, then, that the occurrence was immediately after his departure, and not later than eleven o'clock last night. Our next obvious step is to check, so far as we can, the movements of Mortimer Tregenis after he left the room. In this there is no difficulty, and they seem to be above suspicion. Knowing my methods as you do, you were, of course, conscious of the somewhat clumsy water pot expedient by which I obtained a clearer impress of his foot that might otherwise have been possible. The wet, Sandy Path took it admirably. Last night was also wet, you will remember, and it was not difficult, having obtained a sample print, to pick out his track among others and to follow his movements. He appeared to have walked away swiftly in the direction of the vicarage. If, then, Mortimer Tregenis disappeared from the scene and yet some outside person affected the card players. How can we reconstruct that person, and how was such an impression of horror conveyed? Mrs. Porter may be eliminated. She is evidently harmless. Is there any evidence that someone crept up to the garden window and in some manner produced so terrific an effect that he drove those who saw it out of their senses the only suggestion in this direction comes from mortimer trugness himself who said that his brother spoke about some movement in the garden that is certainly remarkable as the night was rainy cloudy and dark Anyone who had the design to alarm these people would be compelled to place his very face against the glass before he could be seen. There is a three-foot flower border outside this window, but no indication of a footmark. It is difficult to imagine, then, how an outsider could have made so terrible an impression upon the company. "'nor have we found any possible motive for so strange and elaborate an attempt. "'You perceive our difficulties, Watson?' "'They are only too clear,' I answered with conviction. "'And yet, with a little more material, we may prove that they are not insurmountable,' said Holmes." I fancy that among our extensive archives, Watson, you may find some which were nearly as obscure. Meanwhile, we shall put the case aside until more accurate data are available, and devote the rest of our morning to the pursuit of Neolithic man. I may have commented upon my friend's power of mental detachment but never have I wondered at it more than upon that spring morning in Cornwall when for two hours he discoursed upon Celts, Arrowheads and Shards as lightly as if no sinister mystery were waiting for his solution. It was not until we had returned in the afternoon to our cottage that we found a visitor awaiting us, who soon brought our minds back to the matter. Neither of us needed to be told who that visitor was. The huge body, the craggy and deeply-seamed face with the fierce eyes and hawk-like nose, the grizzled hair which nearly brushed our cottage ceiling, the beard golden at the fringes and white near the lips, save for the nicotine stain from his perpetual cigar. All these were as well known in London as in Africa, and could only be associated with the tremendous personality of Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion hunter and explorer. We had heard of his presence in the district, and had once or twice caught sight of his tall figure, "'upon the moorland paths. "'He made no advances to us, however, "'nor would we have dreamed of doing so to him, "'as it was well known that it was his love of seclusion "'which caused him to spend the greater part of the intervals "'between his journeys in a small bungalow "'buried in the lonely wood of Beechamp Arcane. "'Here, amid his books and his maps,' he lived an absolutely lonely life, attending to his own simple wants and paying little apparent heed to the affairs of his neighbors. It was a surprise to me, therefore, to hear him asking Holmes in an eager voice whether he had made any advance in his reconstruction of this mysterious episode. The country police are utterly at fault said he, but perhaps your wider experience has suggested some conceivable explanation. My only claim to being taken into your confidence is that during my many residences here I have come to know this family of Tregenis very well. Indeed, upon my Cornish mother's side I could call them cousins, and their strange fate "'has naturally been a great shock to me. "'I may tell you that I had got as far as Plymouth upon my way to Africa, "'but the news reached me this morning, "'and I came straight back again to help in the inquiry.' "'Holmes raised his eyebrows. "'Did you lose your boat through it? "'I will take the next.' "'Dear me, that is friendship indeed.' I tell you, they were relatives. Quite so. Cousins of your mother. Was your baggage aboard the ship? Some of it, but the main part at the hotel. I see. But surely this event could not have found its way into the Plymouth morning papers. No, sir. I had a telegram. Might I ask from whom? "'A shadow passed over the gaunt face of the explorer. "'You are very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. "'It is my business.' "'With an effort, Dr. Sterndale recovered his ruffled composure. "'I have no objection to telling you,' he said. "'It was Mr. Roundhay, the vicar, who sent me the telegram.' "'Thank you,' said Mr. Holmes.' I may say in answer to your original question that I have not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but that I have every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature to say more. Perhaps you would not mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction. No, I can hardly answer that. Then I have wasted my time and need not prolong my visit. The famous doctor strode out of our cottage in considerable ill humor, and within five minutes Holmes had followed him. I saw him no more until the evening, when he returned with a slow step and haggard face, which assured me that he had made no great progress with his investigation. He glanced at a telegram which awaited him, and threw it into the grate. From the Plymouth Hotel, Watson, he said. I learned the name of it from the vicar, and I wired to make certain that Dr. Leon Sterndale's account was true. It appeared that he did indeed spend last night there, and that he has actually allowed some of his baggage to go on to Africa while he returned to be present at this investigation. What do you make of that, Watson? He is deeply interested. Deeply interested, yes. There is a thread here which has not yet grasped and which might lead us through the tangle. Cheer up, Watson, for I am very sure that our material has not yet all come to hand. When it does, we may soon leave our difficulties behind us. Little did I think how soon the words of Holmes would be realized, or how strange and sinister would be the new development which opened up an entirely fresh line of investigation. I was shaving at my window in the morning when I heard the rattle of hooves, and, looking up, saw a dog cart. Coming at a gallop down the road. It pulled up at our door, and our friend, the vicar, sprang from it and rushed up our garden path. Holmes was already dressed, and we hastened down to meet him.